Okay, thanks for downloading this podcast. Summer is definitely over. It's taken me a while to get back into the swing of things. I've got a few podcasts coming up, so I'm starting off with this one. I want to talk about the idea of pot for life and the problem of multiple pension pots and how this this next change could be the genesis of auto-enrolment 2.0 and potentially quite a profound evolution of the UK's pension system. So we all know we've got a problem. PPI study a few years ago suggested by 2035, we could have 27 million small pension pots, and that there might already be as much as £19 billion in lost pension pots. There's been a lot of work done on this over the years. Steve Webb, kicked off his idea of Pot Follows member back in the early 2010s. Come 2015, Ros Altman took a look at it as new pensions minister and ditched the whole idea. It went quiet for a while. Guy Opperman picked it up again towards the end of his tenure as pensions minister. We've had industry working groups, Andy Cheseldine. And in the end, now we've got the DWP solution, the paper that was published as part of the Mansion House speech, and they've proposed they're going to use default consolidators to deal with the stock of small pots. I'm not going to talk so much about consolidators today. We'll do that separately. I want to focus on the pot for life. And I'm going to start with a couple of quotes from that DWP paper. So right in the intro, Laura Trott says, in the longer term, a simpler system of workplace pension saving could emerge to deal with the fundamental issue that new pension pots are being created every time someone starts a new job. For example, a lifetime provider model with each saver stapled to a pot for life, which may go further to solving this for existing and future pots. However, it is right we focus now on delivering this solution to the small pots issue we face, as no matter what the future of workplace pension saving holds, it is essential deferred small pots are consolidated to the benefit of schemes and, most importantly, members. Great. Further on in the reports, one more quote for you and then I'll, I'll stop that. We recognise that this approach will not eliminate, they're talking about the default consolidators here, will not eliminate the future flow of deferred small pots. However, this approach will result in a significant reduction in the current stock of deferred small pots, whilst also enabling the consolidation of future deferred small pots created. Our call for evidence explored whether priority should be given to addressing the stock or flow of deferred small pots first. There was no clear consensus about whether either should be prioritised. However, respondents noted that neither a default consolidator nor pot follows member approach would truly eliminate the flow of deferred pots, as the pots would have to sit deferred for a period of time before becoming eligible for consolidation. In order to stop the creation of new deferred small pots, a more fundamental change to the automatic enrolment framework may be needed. In the future, a simpler system of stapling, as seen in Australia, where the member's active pension pot is assigned as their pot for life unless they actively choose may emerge. This would create an environment which is easier for a member to engage with, but is clearly some way off in the UK. So the DWP is putting down a kind of a marker there and saying, look, we'll deal with the consolidation of the existing stock of small pots to start with, and that's where the default consolidators idea has come out. Looks complicated to deliver. Good luck with that. But in the meantime, they're also saying, look, we recognise this isn't solving the flow problem, and we're going to have to deal with that. Now, back in March of 2023, Anthony Brown MP introduced a backbench bill which was described as a bill to require employers to pay pension contributions 
into a pension scheme of the employee's choosing and for connected purposes. Now, that bill was withdrawn back in March 2023. Private members' bills very rarely make progress, though the government is using the Jonathan Gullis bill as a mechanism for delivering the 2017 auto-enrolment reforms. But anyway, you look, without government backing, these things tend to not go anywhere. But Anthony was just putting down a bit of a marker and saying, look, this is an issue. And having spoken to him about this, I know that this was stimulated on his part by his frustration at ending up with multiple pension pots. And he felt that simply being allowed to carry one pension with him through his working life from job to job, with new employers contributing to the same pension pot, would have been a far preferable approach from his point of view. So he introduced the bill, it didn't go anywhere. Now, I just want to point out at this juncture, John Lawson, former employee in this industry, now moved on to better things. And I went and knocked on Steve Webb's door back, I think, in 2013. And we said, look, you know, this this idea of having one pension pot that you take with you from job to job where your new employer contributes to it would be a much better approach. And Steve, I think, because the train was already leaving the station at that point on auto-enrolment, didn't go for the idea. But this problem of people having on average 11 jobs, meaning 11 different pots, and according to the DWP research, average cost of running a pension pot is around £20 a year. That's a lot of wasted costs in the industry. And pension providers say the economic minimum for running a pension pot is somewhere around the £3,000 mark, below that. And it's just you're not even going to make money on it. And the industry's problem is a small pots problem. It wants to get rid of the small pots because they're not economic. They suck up resources. But the consumers, the consumers have a multiple pot problem. That's a different problem. This is what Anthony was focusing on with his private members bill. Because what we do at the moment is force people to accept a new pension chosen for them by their employer every time they change jobs. And imagine if this was your bank we're talking about. You start a new job and your employer says, all my staff bank with Lloyds. And if you want to get paid, you'll have to open an account with Lloyds. And you're going, well, hang on, I've got a Monzo account and I'm very happy with it. And the employer says, well, tough. You now have to have a Lloyds account if you work for me. And then when you go to your next employer and they say, well, now you need to have a NatWest account. You end up with all these bank accounts. That's what we're doing with our pensions. And that's a peculiarly unsympathetic thing to do to people, right? These are customers, these are human beings, and it's really, really not a kind thing that we're doing to them in this way, with forcing them to have all these other pensions every time they change jobs. And it leads to a whole lot of knock-on consequences. You get poor decision-making because people arrive at retirement with multiple pension pots, and rather than seeing one big pot of £100,000, they see 10 pots of £10,000, and they think, well, I need some cash, I'll just whip 10 grand out in cash, I'll do enough plus, and that's not necessarily the most tax-efficient or sensible thing for them to do with their money, but they're not looking at it as one big pot, so at least a poor decision-making. And poor engagement because they're trying to keep track of 10 different sets of paperwork and that is just horrible. Why would you do that to people? All these different pension accounts all over the place. There's no way you can formulate a coherent investment strategy across all these different accounts, all these different investment funds offered by different providers. It's just really, really nasty. Lots of wasted time and duplicated efforts. And I think also critically a lack of sense of agency on the individual's part. It's not my pension. It's my employer's pension. It's chosen for me by my employer. I get no choice and no say in the matter. If I want his money, I must accept his pension. That is not a good system. So we've solved the participation problem through auto-enrollment, but we've created a whole load of other problems for ourselves in the process. And this is what I think Pot for Life starts to address. 
I'll just also point out the DWP paper suggested the average cost for transfer is somewhere between 30 and £80. Finger in the air number, but that's what they came up with. So every time someone chooses to consolidate or transfer a pension pot across the system because we're creating all these little pension pots all over the place, you're not only creating administration costs in running the pensions, even if you consolidate them, there's more cost involved. So this is actually, when you take a step back, a crazy, crazy system. And so I'm delighted that there's now a real effort to focus on this and say, look, how can we do things differently? How can we improve on this? And the the basic idea of taking a pension with you from job to job, the same pension, which you can always change if you want to. If you decide that you've been you've seen a better pension or someone has better tech or you just, you know, you want to run your household finances together with your spouse and so you want to put them all in the same place, well, fine, you can change your pension. But absent that, you've chosen a pension and you stick with it and you go to a new employer and you say, This is my pension, put your money into my pension. And that that is a really good idea. So it would be a pretty simple reform to auto-enrolment. You can make a pretty modest change. You probably don't need primary legislation. That's something I'm looking into at the moment with a bit of help. So just introducing a legislative change that says the employee has the right to have the employer contributions paid into a pension of their choice uh, would be pretty simple to deliver. Indeed, potentially it could be delivered this side of the general election. And there would have to be some restrictions on this. For example, it would have to be restricted to public offer pensions, such as Nest, the other master trusts, SIPs and personal pensions, because single employer trusts would probably be out of scope. The trustees of a single employer trust, let's pick a company at random, Glaxo. So you've been working for Glaxo and you leave them and you've left a paid up, I don't even know if they have a defined contribution pension, but let's say they do. And you go to your new employer and you say, right, well, I've got a Glaxo pension. I want you to pay your money into that pension. But the trustees of the Glaxo pension might say, oh, hang on, you're no longer an employee of Glaxo. We don't want you continuing to participate as a contributing member of our pension scheme. We, you know, we have that right. So you probably have to restrict this pot for life system to public offer pension arrangements, as I've said. But you know, to be explored, I think I think that's a relatively straightforward question. And I could see all of this working in parallel and in harmony with whatever the DWP does on the default consolidator model. So the default consolidator is scooping up existing small pots in the system and saying, look, that's a pot of £500 and no one's put any money into it for three years. It's obviously dormant now. We're going to find a live pot or a larger pot we can consolidate that money across into. So that's dealing with the stock of existing small pots. And I see Pot for Life working quite happily in harmony with that. People exercising choice where they want to. I don't think that we're crossing the streams here. I don't think that's a problem. I know that the DWP doesn't want lots and lots of default consolidators because that would just end up diluting the benefits of having the consolidator model in the first place. So let's say we end up with half a dozen, maybe at most 10 consolidator schemes that are consolidating the millions of existing dormant pots. Well, that's potentially bad news for anyone who's already struggling perhaps to compete in the accumulation market, which is increasingly dominated by a relatively small number of large auto-enrollment providers. But I don't see why you couldn't have dozens and dozens of pot-for-life providers, the platforms, the fintechs, the life co's, you know, the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne or Scottish Widows or whoever, big businesses like that, or maybe some of the smaller challenger providers, provided they're able to meet the auto-enrollment requirements, then they could be eligible as a pot-for-life provider. So in the long term, we could end up with a system more like Australia, 
where you actually have to make a choice. And they started with member choice just being an option, but with defaults sitting behind it. And then in the end, the Australians removed the defaults and they've moved to a system where you present new employees with a requirement to select a pension and they have industry funds and mostly people go into those. And maybe we could end up in the same place in the UK with a handful of master trusts that act as the big default consolidators. And alongside them, public offer schemes like GPPs, Group SIPs, Master Trusts, all offering alternative accumulation options, perhaps a few dozen providers in total. And I don't see why that system wouldn't give us the best of both worlds. It would give us scale, it would give us defaults in terms of the consolidation of pots, it would give us a vibrant and competitive market of providers competing for for customers' money, which would keep everybody honest. Crucially, it would give the individual agency and control over their money. So this all looks pretty good. Now, you know, I've talked to a few people about this. I get the fact that there are some issues. So I'm going to run through a few of them here. I think mostly they're pretty easy to address. I think there's one of of real substance that does need considering. But so I'm trying to be fair here. So first of all, this is a question of defaults. We don't want to lose the good work of auto-enrolment. So I think for now, you know, we stick with the defaults. You definitely need to keep them for now. And I think so the small step of just introducing the right to choose is a good one. And alongside that, employers would continue to operate their default pensions as they do at present. They'd just be the option for Tom to go to his new employer and say, look, I've, I've got an existing pension. I don't want to be defaulted into your pension. So please put your money into my existing pension. And that way we get the best of both worlds. So if we were to move in the longer term to moving away from those defaults and we might have a carousel system where you break the link of the employer selecting a pension, and employers might be quite grateful for that. I think they probably find the whole thing a bit of a pain in the ass. Or you move to a system where everyone has to make a choice and apparently that works pretty well in Australia. Well, that remains to be seen. I think that's further down the line. Let's just start with introducing the element of choice. Now, The critical problem with all of this, as I see it, is this question of payroll. So at the moment, the focus is on the employer and their interface with the pension providers. And at the moment, they send one payment on one data file to their default pension provider every month. And that is simple. Uh, Well, I mean, it's not, but it works, right? We managed to make it work. We built the whole system painstakingly over the last 10 or 15 years, and it works. So... If we don't want to break everything, there needs to be a simple mechanism where it's still simple for the employer. And I think this is likely to come in one of two forms. So there may be other solutions. So I think one answer is a payroll adaptation. The employer records the employee's preferred pension provider in their HR records or their staff records. And when they're making their monthly pay run, as well as sending monthly pay to multiple bank accounts, the payroll system would also make multiple payments to multiple pension providers. And this is perfectly doable, given particularly as we're probably only talking at a few dozen pension providers, and payroll companies could could quite easily build the connections to those pension providers. It's just that that system doesn't exist at the moment. That facility, those data fields within the payroll systems don't exist right now, so someone would have to build them. And the other solution is a more substantial, weighty one, where you actually build a centralised clearinghouse where all the employers, everyone sends their contributions to the central clearinghouse along with the data file and the clearinghouse spits the money out to the different pension providers, sort of pensions equivalent of backs, if you like. Uh, And this feels a bit more ambitious and given the pace of progress on dashboard and the default consolidators, it's perhaps a bit more optimistic. I don't know, this needs exploring further. I think arguably 
If the DWP legislated for the change to say people now have the right to choose, so employers you are going to have to deliver on this and it's going to come in in two years' time or three years' time or whatever, then I think potentially the system's development would follow. But understandably, the DWP is going to be a bit hesitant about actually legislating for this unless they can see that the systems are actually deliverable. Otherwise, we end up a bit where we did with Dashboard, where they go, right, you're all going to do it by this date, and everyone goes, "Mm, no. (laughs) So there's a bit of work to be done there. But I think it is all doable, and I think that work is going to happen pretty fast over the next few months. In fact, I know it is. So, So there's that. One to come back to, though. So it's also been argued that breaking that link with the employer and the employer's default pension or undermining it would also undermine employer support for pensions. And there's this argument that the employer support adds value to the whole pension experience through workplace education, tools, seminars, and the like. And if you undermine this relationship between the employer the provi- and the provider, then that support, that vital support, would be lost. But I'm pretty sceptical about this for a couple of reasons. First of all, because millions of employees are members of master trusts, including Nest, which by their nature are pretty generic and which in the main do not go into the workplace and deliver this hands-on coaching and training and information. And no one's complaining about their members missing out on the workplace education. In fact, I don't know how many employers do actively work with their pension provider to take financial literacy and pension engagement into the workplace, but I'm willing to guess it's a minority. We've got over a million employers in this country, and I suspect most don't do that. But also, in addition, workplace education and support, financial coaching and the like, can all be delivered irrespective of which scheme someone is a member of. And the key change is it might not be the pension provider delivering that because the pension provider, a default provider, might not look after a significant proportion of the workforce. So, But this might not be a bad thing. We've seen the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne doing good work on financial resilience. And, you know, take another example, Scottish Widows, Lloyds Bank mashup means that their services now extend across a, a broad spectrum of financial needs and services far beyond the pension. And of course, there are financial capability service providers like Money Alive already doing generic financial education work. So I think if you moved to a world where there was no one default provider in a workplace or the residual default provider that continued to exist only looked after less than 100% of the workforce, maybe even only a minority of the workforce, well, that's not a barrier to employers still doing financial education and information if they wanted to. And that's, I think, is all fine. So there's also been this argument that it would lead to a bit of a feeding frenzy, that providers would come wading in, competing for each other's business, trying to eat each other's lunch, advertising. And indeed, if you look at Australia, there has been a very substantial increase in pensions advertising on TV. Pensions advertising on TV. Oh, it's exciting. Thanks to the introduction of member choice. Now, Arguably, this has been a bad thing with money and effort wasted to entice people away from each other's schemes and eating at marketing costs and, and that kind of thing. But there's a couple of reasons why I don't think we should be too worried about this. Firstly, because we could do with a bit more excitement around pensions. We've even got currently pension providers pouring money into a pension attention campaign precisely to try and get people a bit more excited about their pensions. And this is a campaign for which Guy Opperman deserves much of the credit, but I'll claim a bit too, having been involved in getting the whole thing started. But more importantly, though, for those concerned about consumer protection, 
we can build those regulatory safeguards and standards into the products used for Pot for Life. For example, a charge capped default fund, very important. And we also have some very useful regulatory tools that arrived just at the right moment. Take consumer duty, where providers have to identify their target market and their non-target market. They have to deliver value for money for customers and deliver good consumer outcomes. So provided the FCA actually enforces this effectively, that's pretty so strong as a control on FCA-regulated providers abusing the opportunity that Pot for Life might present and exploiting consumers' ignorance and flogging them poor-value products. Yes, they can advertise, but they still have to sell them something that is demonstrably good value for money. And then you throw into the mix the pensions regulators' value-for-money framework, and we're cooking on gas at this point. Now, that, in theory, will ensure that pension providers are transparent and scrutinised and accountable for the costs and charges and the investment performance and the services they provide. Now, when you look at Australia, they've got pretty brutal with this stuff. They have performance league tables. And if you're consistently at the bottom of the league tables, first of all, you end up having to write to all your members saying, we're a bit shit, sorry. And then if you continue to be at the bottom of the league tables, you actually have to close your doors to new business. So... Again, provided the pensions regulator uses the stick it's given itself to beat pension providers with effectively when needed, then between them, I think the FCA and TPR have all the tools they need to ensure that pot for life isn't abused by the pension providers. And then it's been argued that, look, if we move away from the single employer, single scheme model, it will dilute the scheme cross-subsidy. You know, you've got the more attractive, higher value, higher paid employees in in any particular workforce, providing a cross-subsidy for the lower paid, less valuable employees, and schemes are priced as a whole. And so if you you take that away, then all the well-paid employees will go and use Pot for Life because they're better paid and more financially literate and they've got money to play with. And then that will undermine the cross-subsidy and the whole scheme pricing falls apart. And I've got a couple of thoughts about that. Well, one is higher paid does not necessarily mean more engaged. And quite often the high paid people are also the ones very busy, not necessarily engaged with their finances. They might be paying someone else to do it for them. So there's that. So there's not necessarily a correlation there that says it'll be just the high paid people that exercise pot for life choice. But also cross-subsidies exist everywhere across the system, between scheme members and intertemporarily for individual members. When you first join a pension, you're a loss leader, and pension providers stick with you because they hope that over time you'll build an account value, you'll become more valuable, and they'll generate a profit from you in the longer term. So small accounts are subsidised by their older, wealthier selves in the future. But also, this is a zero-sum game. There is the same overall pool of individuals. If we introduce pot for life, we'll just move things around a bit, but it'll be the same number of people with the same amount of money going in, in theory. I mean, maybe pot for life will actually change the amount going in, and that would be good too, but let's say it doesn't. It's still the same pool. It's just going to accumulate in slightly different places, but the overall sums involved and the overall numbers of individuals don't change. So I think what this objection boils down to probably is more about the pension providers themselves being a little anxious, understandably, about pot for life undermining their existing scheme pricing and their business model and what that would do to them. And yep, change is scary, but we have to deal with that. So I don't think 
any of the problems that have been identified here are really substantial apart from this question of the payroll thing. And I think that is an important one to deal with. We need to find a solution that ensures employers can continue to operate the, the role they play in the pension system without a significant disruption to them. So we need to have conversations with clearinghouse providers, with payroll providers to see what solutions could be delivered and what, what the costs might be and then who would pay for it. And that's where we go next. Well, And then in the meantime, the DWP does have quite a lot to deal with right now, what with value for money and the trustee skills and culture and decumulation and getting this whole default consolidators thing underway. So um, none of this is simple. We've got a lot of fixture congestion and there's going to be a general election sometime in the next 12 months or so. So I think the first thing to watch out for is the King's speech on the 7th of November, and we'll find out then whether a pensions bill has made the cut. I think it's probably a pretty strong bet that it will, but you know none of this is certain. I mean, there's certainly stuff the DWP would like to get done. So that might provide a vehicle, primary legislation. But even if not, back to the present, I think we need to focus on just introducing that small change that Anthony Brown first proposed of introducing member choice, Possibly that can be done through secondary legislation anyway, and that would get the ball rolling. And then we can worry about more substantial changes to water enrolment, such as unpicking the relationship between employers and the pension provider, or even removing the default mechanisms altogether and introducing Australian stapling and so on in the longer term. But that's one for a, for a different government to worry about. I'm really keen to hear opinions on all of this, either for or against. So do please get in touch. Thanks for listening. And thanks as ever to Ross Burns for editing.